Hey guys, Jeff here from besttechie.com, and this is Techie Bites episode 39. Today I'm speaking with Harj Tagger, co-founder and CEO at TripleByte, and also one of the first partners at Y Combinator. We discuss his time at Y Combinator, including how he evaluated startups and grew the program from 30 to 100 companies per batch. Plus, We talk about ICOs and their benefits and drawbacks, as well as whether blockchain will live up to the hype. Enjoy. This podcast is supported by Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your own professional website. Choose a template you love or start from scratch, drag and drop to customize anything, and use advanced design features like video backgrounds and image galleries. You can even add professional business solutions like an online store, booking system, or blog. I've personally tested and reviewed Wix on Best Techie and can say without a doubt that Wix is extremely easy to use and a great choice for both novice and advanced users. So go ahead, try it yourself. Go to Wix.com and create your own website today. That's Wix, W-I-X.com. I'm here with Harj Tagger, a co-founder and CEO at a company called TripleByte. They're a company that actually helps other startups and companies Evaluate and hire engineers, which is some which is some of the hardest hiring you'll have to do, especially as a startup founder. And we'll get into all that. But before we do, I just want to say welcome to Harj. Well, thanks for being on the podcast today. Well, thanks, Jeff. Excited to be here. Awesome. So you have like you have, you have quite uh, an interesting background. But before I, before we talk about your background and and then and leading up to Triple Byte and all that stuff. Just kind of give us, I like to start off usually each episode, kind of give us a quick uh, who you are and what you do on a day-to-day basis. Cool. Okay. So um, today I'm uh, one of the co-founders and CEO of Triple Byte, which is, as you said, we're a, a company that helps other companies hire technical talent, specifically software engineers. Um, uh, what I end up doing on a day-to-day basis, the truth is it, it's very varied and it varies both on just the priorities for any given week or month and also varies a lot as the company grows so we're at around 40 people now um and what the stage we're at a lot of my days ended up focused on i'd say more external facing things so things like this like you know talking to press and um uh and people sort of interested in the space and what we're doing um i focus a lot on hiring um and we're trying to especially build out more of our leadership team at the moment i end up spending a lot of time with potential candidates finding people who could have expertise that would help us grow and scale next year uh, i spend time with investors obviously i cover both our current investors updating them on how the business is going and also potential um new investors as we think about raising um future rounds uh i spend a fair amount of time also on i'd say sort of, uh, sales and business development um probably more on the business development front in the sense of you know, identifying potential large customers for us and building those relationships and um, kind of getting getting them to run trials and, and work with us. Uh, and then finally, I um, obviously sort of internally spend time getting updates from the team leads and the heads on sort of how the company's going. And I, I'm not necessarily involved day to day in every decision, but I, I'm responsible for making sure that everyone's clear on the overall strategy, what the high-level goal for the company is and making sure everyone's very clear on how their individual team goals fit into that company strategy and goal. That sounds like a lot. <laughs> I'm yeah. just going to go ahead. Yeah. I, I mean, you were rattling things off and it was like, okay, and then and then it was like, okay, 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 there's one more thing. Um, no, I'm sure you keep pretty busy with it. I mean, that sounds like quite a bit of stuff, you know, even if you're just 
handling a lot of the external stuff, the factors, it still seems like quite a bit of stuff on your plate. Yeah, it, it's 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 interesting because it is so early on, sort of like the earlier stages of of a company. Um, you, I, I think you, you, in some ways, you feel more busy because you have more clearly defined tasks. So when the company was first getting off the ground, I had like, you know, it's more like I was actually working on building the first version of the the website with my co-founders, and then sort of all sales was done entirely by me, and so my day looked very much more like. Here's like a here's like a huge to do list, and I've got to kind of put my head down and get through all of the work, and then and that feels busy in a sort of uh, there's just I wish I had more hours and to be able to like produce more output kind of right. way. As a company grows, you start hiring people, and your responsibility becomes more like a sort of an editor than a than a content producer, and I think it's a different kind of busy. You're not busy in the sense of feeling like uh you you need to increase your personal output but you're busy in the sense of there's just so many balls in the air and you're constantly context switching between them and um trying to sort of stay on top of things and keep the context and and keep yourself organized and uh is is kind of where where everything gets filled in from so you you end up doing sort of less depth of work i'd say but there's just a lot more surface area and a lot more that's um kind of in your in your mind at any given moment yeah, I, I, I'd have to agree with that. You know, I, I was building an analytics company called Kaya, and as we kind of grew the company a bit, um, I certainly, I certainly felt feel like that 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 was the case as well. Like you, you know, at the early like the early days, it was all about you know, all right, we have to launch a a, a launch page, a splash page, and then we have to make sure we're building the actual product that people can sign up for, and then. You know, and then it was, and then you know, and then it's, and then it's like, all right, now we have to sign on some customers, and and then it becomes just, you know, a lot of other things that, like you're saying, I think, I think that was a great analogy, the kind of editor versus content producer. Uh, I think that's a really great way of, of uh, kind of phrasing it. Um, one of the things you mentioned uh, before we move on, I, I just wanted to get pick your brain on this a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that you, you handle a lot of bit uh, biz dev and kind of like, especially for larger enterprise customers. What yeah. what? What is that process like for you? Because I, I, I don't think it's not a topic we've covered too much on this podcast to date. I'd love to hear yeah. kind of how you approach that. So at first, of all, I think it's it's worth making a distinction between sales and business development because of their their fuzzyish terms. I think mm-hmm. sales sales tends to be more when um well at least the way I think about it sales is more of something where there's sort of a clearly defined playbook and typically what you're doing is you know and it's more of a volume based thing so you know you're you're a, like for example for triple white sales for us looks like okay let's identify like you know hundreds or thousands of companies in the bay area or one market that are potentially hiring engineers let's first build a list to identify all of them and then let's methodically work through like how we're going to reach them that's having like a sales like we have sales reps on our teams who who'll do like find you know find contacts and do outreach those contacts saying hey like you should learn about tripwire maybe we'll do content marketing to try and get some of those coming more via inbound we, we work on advertising like, all, all those kinds of things and in my mind that's sort of sales where the idea is you're trying to get sort of you, you know that there's hundreds or maybe thousands of potential customers you identify them and then you're trying to do outreach to them and you it's like a sales funnel you're trying to think of how many of those you can convert and move through um uh and that's something you can build a sales team around and that's something i don't think a, a founder or a ceo or an exec of a company should really be spending their time on because they you can hire people to do that um and they'll be better at it than you will um business development to me that looks a lot more like um 
uh, a concentrated list of companies. And the way I think about it is who are the companies that we're just not going to get through a sales process because if we send them an email, they're just not going to reply because they're getting way too many of them. Or there's, it's going to require having a relationship, finding a champion, like, um, it, it's going to require more of that. And that's where I think, um, the founder and the CEO should be involved. And I, I know even public companies who are, who are enterprise sales heavy, where still the founder and CEO is involved in closing like the big Fortune 500 deals. And so um, that's the kind of stuff that I spend my my time on. And you know, I'll, it's, what that looks like is, you know, for example, like we were one of the companies to work with is Apple. That came about via a relationship I had with an engineering director there. Um, who sort of I spent time sort of explaining how Tripwire works with works um, works and how it could benefit them and his org and and sort of after he got comfortable then he championed it internally and it still took months before we could get the final approval to work with them but that's the that's the kind of sort of um, way I think about the sort of biz dev and I think I think that's something that a founder and CEO is uniquely leveraged to do because. Um, people especially at larger organizations if you're speaking to someone that's like at a director level um it, they're they're more likely to respond to you as a founder or a ceo than they are to someone who's got sort of like a account executive in their title so it's just it's more flattering and it seems more important so i think that's something that startups should really leverage if they need to do enterprise sales and they're trying to have, land those sort of marquee customers Right, absolutely. I found this. I found the same to be true, especially you know, as a founder of a company. Or um, there's a certain kind of you know, you started this because most likely there was a pain point that you were facing, right? So you completely understand the problem that you're trying that you're solving with your product. You're also super passionate about it. Uh, I would imagine, at least a good yeah. founder, I would imagine, is super passionate about it. Um, and and that really translates whenever you're speaking with someone. You could have a great repeatable sales process that, you know, um, but that's not going to work, like you said, for when you're dealing with a company like the size of Apple. You're never going to get a, res a response to even open the door to a conversation uh, unless you have yeah. some kind of relationship uh, with them in, in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cool. So that's super helpful, I think. And I, and I think the differentiation between uh, biz dev and sales uh, also super helpful for the audience. I think that uh, that you know, kind of delineating how how you see it. I I I tend to agree with that 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 philosophy that you just uh, shared as well. But I want to talk a little bit before we go back to Triple Byte. I want to I want to dive into your background a bit because it's super interesting to me. Um, so prior to founding Triple Byte, you were actually one of the first Y Combinator partners. Um, uh, yeah. I, yeah. How did, how did you get started at YC, which is obviously, uh, for, for those who don't know, it's one of the, it's like the premier accelerator or um, group in uh, that's based in Silicon Valley and pretty much all over the world. Everyone wants to, every startup that wants to be a startup usually wants to get into YC uh, or try to at least. Yeah, I so my my history with YC goes, um, goes fairly far back. So um, I, if I rewind, so... I was, uh, I, I grew up in England, it's probably obvious from the way I sound, um, <laughs> uh, and, and I, was, um, I was in college in, uh, in England, and during my second year, I started working on a side project, which is just a really simple classified sites for students, and it's like very basic, um, sort of, I knew that I wanted to be able to buy and sell textbooks and just like trade things with, with other people just to save money, because like I was broke and all students pretty much broke. Um, uh, 
uh, but sort of there wasn't like the student website, the official university website to do that was pretty um, basic. And there were sort of people using notice boards to like posting for sale or emailing around. And um, at the same time, sort of Facebook was just starting to become a little bit popular. Um, and uh, so sort of my cousin and I had seen sort of uh, how Facebook was using uh, email addresses to college email addresses to verify identity and we thought how hey, wouldn't it be, it'd be cool if you build a, a sort of a classified version of that where you could only sign up with your college email address so you know you so you'd always be able to know who the other person was and you could trust them and and that kind of stuff and so we launched that and it started getting a little bit of traction and we launched it at some other colleges across England and it started getting traction there um, and we and I sort of had actually enrolled in law school because uh, my plan was to go into corporate law. Uh, my cousin had started working as an investment banker, um, and he quit his job, and I dropped out of law school to sort of pursue this full time as a as a startup. Um, uh, and that wasn't really going very well because we we couldn't really we were having a hard time raising funding in London, and um, we just generally we didn't have any peers. All of our friends had gone into uh, investment banking, law, corporate, very like corporate career paths. Um, and I stumbled across a essay from Paul Graham online. Like I, I was Googling something like mistakes that kill startups and, and there's one that links to Paul Graham. He probably uh, has an article essay. with that title. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm sure, or something similar. <laughs> it's very, no, it literally was, it was something, it was like, I knew something like, you know, mistakes startups make and it took me to Paul Graham's essay, which I think is like the 18 mistakes that kill startups. Um, uh-huh. And, um, and so I read the essay and I was like, okay, this guy just understands startups better than anyone I've met. Like he obviously is very smart. He'd be very insightful. And so I emailed him saying, hey, like I'm, uh, two of us are struggling to get our startup off the ground in London. Like, can I just get your advice? What should we do? Could I meet you? Um, and he replied back saying, the best way to do this is you should apply to Y Combinator, this thing I just started. Um, and this is, the summer 2000 or late getting towards the autumn 2006 uh and i i replied back i sort of clicked through on the link and there wasn't very much about y combination at the time but it seemed interesting like it was very much pitched as summer boot camp for college students that you know if you want to work on your if you've got a startup idea and you want to work on it for three months um uh we'll give you you know like fifteen thousand dollars and um uh, and you can go at it and it was, the wording was a very low commitment it was like you know if it turns into a company awesome if it doesn't then you go back to school no big deal um uh and i thought how oh, that looks that sounds really cool like that sounds the kind of thing that we want and worst case scenario we spend three months in silicon valley we'll probably learn a lot and it'll be a useful experience so we applied um flew out to Boston, which is where they're doing the interviews, interviewed with Paul, Jessica, Trevor, and Robert, who are the four founders of Y Combinator. Um, they liked what we were doing. They saw sort of a bigger picture, a bigger vision behind it, um, uh, and funded us. So I moved out to uh, San Francisco in January 2007 to go through Y Combinator. Um, uh, at the time, there were only 10 companies in our batch, which at the time was like the biggest batch they ever had, and it, it seemed huge. But um, uh, we went through that. We raised some seed funding from Chris Sacker, Paul Buhayt, um, uh, and some other sort of Silicon Valley angels that um, uh, sort of got us just excited about continuing to work on the company, obviously. And uh, sort of a year and a half later, we were acquired um, uh, by a Canadian company. Uh, we moved to Vancouver as part of that deal, lived there for a year. And then I came back, and this is towards the end of 2009, and started talking to Paul and Jessica about my next steps, and started bouncing startup ideas off them. Uh, and Paul said, 
well, it'd be exciting if you work on a startup, but at the same time, Y Combinator itself, we're kind of going through a, a, a sort of inflection point because up until that point, Y Combinator had largely been sort of funding a few startups a year. It'd been sort of like a single interest for Paul and Jessica and something they enjoyed doing, but they were reaching this point where they could, they were getting more sort of inbound applications that seemed really promising and companies they wanted to fund um, than they could sort of handle with just the two. They were the only two people working on it full time. Uh, uh, and they felt like there was something to Y Combinator itself because they were surprised by like how well some of the companies they funded and started doing because they, they hadn't really expected that. Um, like at this point, sort of Dropbox and Airbnb were starting to emerge as really interesting companies. Um, and they were just surprised by how much, how, how the quality of the inbound applications just kept going up. And they didn't want to turn away companies because they didn't have people, they, they could only fund 10 a year or something. So I started talking to them just about that and just, they, you know, it was like, you know, well, what would it look like? Like, and how, like, you know, what, how could, like, how could Y Combinator even fund, like, more than 10 companies a year or 10 companies a batch? And, um, and those conversations got really, really interesting. And so, uh, January 2010, I joined Y Combinator in a, uh, the was I, I didn't really have an official title. Um, uh, I was sort of just like, helping review funding applications, working with the startups, helping advise them, like helping them get their first products off the ground. Just like a lot of stuff that um, was quite interesting. And then- You were um, like an all-purpose utility guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the truth is what I really was, and Paul and Jessica were, were sort of polite enough not to say is that I was an experiment because they knew that they, they knew that in order to fund more startups, someone else they'd have to hire someone else to um to work on it with them and just to just to like kind of give you an indication of what white comedy was like at this point like like there wasn't even payroll set up to pay me so that was sort of like the first like the the first thing that we had to like figure out setting up um uh but like so i they wanted to see just kind of what does it look like because at that point paul was the only one that was advising the startups and so it was sort of like, you know, what will happen if someone else is advising them? Will the startups be like, ah, like, we don't want that. We only want to speak to Paul. Like, can, like, um, you know, will we start giving, will, will two people start giving conflicting advice? Like, how are we going to handle that? Like, um, just like, there's a, there a lot of unknowns with just how does it look like having someone else try and, um, try and work on this. Uh, and the experiment went pretty well, actually. Like, I enjoyed it. The startups seemed to enjoy working with me. I, um, there weren't sort of any conflicts there when we weren't so we we found that paul and i were fairly in sync um with the sort of advice that we were, we were giving them for the most part um uh and so uh after that i was like okay well this white company thing is actually really interesting like the quality of the companies applying is like fascinating like this could be itself a really interesting company of some sort because it, it's not really a traditional type of company and so i joined officially as a, a partner in the fund uh and March that year um, uh, and was then there for four years and over that period of time we went from you know like funding uh, maybe like 30 to 40 companies um, per year by the time I left we were at like just under 100 per single batch so we went through like a lot of a lot of growth a lot of scaling Y Combinator itself a lot of figuring out like how to fund how to fund more companies and just it was a it was an incredible experience I learned a ton and um, I was lucky to be involved with some companies that have have since gone on and ha had really great outcomes. Like um, the, the two that probably stand out right now, like Coinbase and Zen, as Coinbase and Instacart are two companies that have really grown and really, really sort of exploding. And then uh, PlanGrid was just acquired for um, uh, around nine hundred million dollars this um, 
uh, last month, and just it's been really cool seeing how how those companies from like six or seven years ago are so starting to really break out and, and have an impact. How, that's one of the things that kind of just piqued my curiosity. So, so when you when you were accepted into YC for your uh, for your uh, for your company, your first company, there you said there was ten other companies. Uh, or elite or ten in the program with you, right? Yeah. Including yourself. Okay. So then, and then, and then, by the time, and then, and then, a couple years went past, and then by the time you were a partner, and then you, and by the time then you had left, there. Uh, by the time you were a partner, then you were you started doing around twenty to thirty companies per batch, and by the time you yeah, had left, why? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're, you're and right. then by the time you had left Y Combinator, you're saying that there was over a hundred companies per oh, batch. Just, just under. I think. I think oh, just the under. Batch, I, yeah, the the peak batch I had was like about I think it was eighty eight companies, some some something like that. Um, uh, I, I think they're at I think Wacom is now at just over a hundred companies per batch. Right. Yeah, I believe so as well. So so I'm curious how how did the scaling process like how how did that unfold? Because because obviously from ten to eighty, you know, there's there's only yeah. so much time in the day that you could spend helping a, a, a person yeah. or a company or uh, you know, giving advice and, and, and there, you know, how, how did that, how did you decide like, all right, we can go to 20. All right, we can go to 30. All right. We, you know, how, how did that work? So, um, and this is that, this, this particular question is just like where I learned the most from. And in particular working alongside Paul and Jessica was like just amazing for this. So, um, I think the first thing that we had was we didn't, or Paul was always very insistent that, we we shouldn't think about it as we're setting a goal for like how many companies we're trying to fund in any given batch or year. Like um, he didn't want us to be like, okay, this year this batch we're funding thirty five, and next batch we're going to fund fifty. Like the the way that we thought about it was always we've got to be very clear on ourselves on who's over the bar to fund, and being over the bar to fund means like you know do they and this is a little fuzzy, but you know it's like do they have a realistic chance of going on and being a billion dollar company. Um, uh, and if you answer that question, all other things independent, doesn't matter how many companies we funded so far, if the answer to that question is yes, then we fund that company. And if it's no, then we don't. Um, uh, and so before, when we were sort of going through interview season for a batch, we never actually knew how many companies we were going to fund. There was no target. There was no there was no goal. Um, it was just at the end of each day, we'd go through and be like, okay, we're funding. These are the ones we want to fund. Um, uh, and we'd only know at the end how many we were funding. Um, so first off, that that's kind of the, the way it went. Um, and then second, like Paul had this philosophy, and it comes from sort of being a, a software engineer, which is that um, you can't prematurely optimize things. So there's no point trying to guess where the scaling bottlenecks are going to arise um, or, or where things are going to break down before they actually happen. Like the skill you need is not prediction. The skill you need is moving quickly to fix things once they break because you can't predict what's going to break. So the way that we always approach NYC was okay, like. Once we know how many companies we're funding, um, then we, you know, what we obviously you address obvious issues. So the first step is like what, like you know, what are we going to need? Like, like some of the things are really quite logistical. It's like okay, we're actually going to just need more space. Like we're actually going to need more physical space for this number of startups. So we we actually started doing things like knocking down walls in the, the at the time <laughs> the YT office at the time because um, and adding in more benches and rows of tables. Like it was literally down to that level of detail. Like okay, step number one, like how do we just like physically accommodate more companies? Um, 
And then it's like, yeah, then it's like questions like you're asking, like, okay, well, now they're going to need, um, they're going to, there's going to be more companies requesting our time. Like our current system of, they just email us when they want to meet, that's not going to work. So Paul actually built software, which, um, uh, allowed companies to sort of request they needed to speak to one of us and that put them in the queue and we'd get alerted when there were companies in the queue and we had to always be clearing our queues. And part of my routine every day was like waking up and seeing, okay, like how many companies are in the queue? And if they, if there's a stack of companies in the queue that need to speak to someone, then, um, uh, I used the software Paul had built to, um, set up office hours and they'd all like companies in the queue would go into the office hours and, and that system worked well. And then, um, it's kind of like, like, kinda like when you're on an airplane and you need the flight attendant for something, you press. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. And the first version of the, and this is again, we just went through so many iterations. Like the first version of this software, you can request a specific person. You could just request you need to speak to someone. Then we would, then we realized, okay, like we need to. It, it makes more sense for people to be able to request who they speak to. So then we like added that feature, and then then we realized that okay, like continuity is a factor. Like it makes more sense for us to sort of have ownership over certain companies so that they they know to default to speak to us and if they want to speak to someone else then they need a reason they specify a reason for why they need to speak to that person so that person can be prepared on uh, on what to talk to them about so lots of stuff like this internally um and then after every batch we were really strict about getting feedback so both in person we just ask at all the companies like what worked what didn't work um uh, obviously people can be polite so we also would send around anonymous feedback surveys and be like what worked about the badge what didn't work about the badge um, and we'd review that and then try and fix it as best we could for, for the next batch we just kept repeating that process um, um, and and I think what the for us at least I think what the, the sort of key thing that we put in place just before um, I was leaving and um, is that we, we sort of assigned this idea of track so a Y Combinator batch got divided up essentially into subgroups and each of those groups had their own partner or two partners um, and so within a batch there was sort of this sense of um, uh, sort of groups and then each grid then the partners who owned a group had to make sure that they were doing enough office hours and staying on top of those companies so that they were feeling like they were getting like the resources and help that they needed and um, and I think that was sort of like a key moment for us because as soon as we started doing that then the recipe for scaling Y Combinator was apparent. The, the the recipe is hire more partners, have more groups within the batches. And so although the batch size itself might grow to 100 plus, each group can remain at a fairly constant size with the right level of um, sort of the right ratio of companies to partners. And that that was kind of all, the, these are all the kinds of issues, things, things that we were sort of thinking through um, as we were scaling YC. Gotcha. So so did the, did the groups uh, that were assigned to partners were those partners uh, specialized in a particular like what, like that group was like I don't know the AI group or something and this partner at the was... time at the time I was then no we weren't doing that level of specialization but I also now know um, uh, I also went through Y Combinator with Triple Byte in 2015 so it was kind of interesting to go back to being on on sort of the other side of it as a, as uh -huh. a user of the of the product I guess um, and the, and it was moving more in that direction where yes like um, and I think that even they now do that even upstream so you know if you're an ai company you're more likely to be interviewed by a partner that's got a sort of expertise in ai and then if you're accepted then you'll be in that partner's group so that they can sort of use that domain expertise that that, that is indeed the direction it's moved towards gotcha that makes sense so one of the things i want uh, other one of the other things i want to talk about in terms of yc with you is just in you mentioned before uh when you were when you when you're evaluating uh, startups for the program um 
is a startup a billion dollar plus kind of idea that you know comp- this can this company turn into a billion dollar plus company uh was that like the, like the the ultimate factor or or were there i mean obviously team and people and you know i guess and stuff but like was that really what like the, what the bar was that you looked for when 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 looking to uh accept or deny uh startups into the program uh, yes i i do have a bit of cognitive dissonance <laughs> here because like so although i say that so i mean in, in essence everyone who's investing in startups is ideally only wants to invest in buttons that are going to be right. billion dollar companies, right so <laughs> right. It's, it's it's not exactly like anyone sets out saying i only want to invest in companies that are worth one million dollars um uh so of course that is a sense in the bar but what i think we were realistic or i think what i feel we understood really well and i think better than any other early stage investors is that the earlier stage you go just the harder it is to know like you you have to just have less confidence in your ability to predict if someone's over that bar or not um and so although that was the bar we weren't internally sort of we didn't internally have this sort of huge confidence that we are sort of oracle or so we can predict with a high level of accuracy who's going to be over the bar and who's not so um but at the same time we knew we had to make a decision you can't just fund everyone and obviously some companies are very 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 unlikely to become that and so um what I, the way we approached it was, you know, I'd say I'd say I'd use like that that idea of being a billion dollar company as sort of the compass. So that's the obvious direction we're heading towards. But like, you know, we weren't sort of rigid in the sense of okay, well, we're only going to fund companies that have already got over X million dollars in revenue or already growing at a particular percentage. Because I mean, firstly, that would just limit the pool too much. Like, especially when I was there, like companies with any form of users, customers or revenue just weren't applying to white companies for the most part. Um, but even if they were, like that doesn't necessarily, like just because you you hit a certain milestone doesn't mean you'll hit the next milestone. Like, um, uh, and so I think our approach to it was, we know that's the goal, but we've got to, Ultimately, what we're trying to do is less fund companies that we think can be a billion dollars in the sense of the market or the size of the market or the analysis of their competitors or all this kind of stuff, and more trying to fund teams and founders that we thought had the potential to grow into that kind of company. And that requires, so that potential aspect of it, that requires, you know, uh, some of the things you mentioned earlier about like just passion, like are they excited about what they're working on? And it wasn't, it's not passion. You're not looking for passion in the sense of, you know, just high energy and bouncing around all over the place because anyone can kind of put that on as a show. <laughs> you're looking for passion, right? Like you're looking for passion in the sense of like, do they care so much about this problem that they've obviously spent a lot of time researching and thinking about it and immersing themselves in it, right? So uh, to give you an example of a company that didn't go through Y Combinator, it would have been great if it had, like Facebook, um, um, like, so Mark Zuckerberg, like the kind of passion he would have shown about Facebook if he if he had applied to Y Combinator, it wouldn't have been sort of like this animated sort of energetic character jumping in down, right? Like the passion would have been the fact that he'd already worked on several projects that showed interest in this idea of connecting people and matching people and um pre-Facebook there was like the music sharing site, I think there was a photo rating site, like a bunch of a bunch of things which for us would have really stood out, especially because he was a freshman or just like a college student, right? So it's like, okay, like this isn't someone who's just sort of 
on a whim decided to launch something. This is someone that's got a real interest in this and they've got a real passion and they've already launched several projects. And if they've already, and like launching real projects and real services when you're in college, like um, that's impressive by itself because that's, that's your like relative to your peer group. That, that's pretty impressive. So those are the kinds of things we were looking for. It's like, does, has someone gone deep in thinking through a problem and they're obviously excited about it? Because that's a sign that they'll be wanting to work on that problem for a long period of time. Uh, and then two, just like, how are they relative to their peer group? And that, that was a big question. Like, we weren't looking for people that um, had sort of just gone necessarily down the standard path and were sort of in sort of the average of their their peer group we were looking for like people that were outliers in some respect right so like a 19 year old who's already launched a popular service that's a that's a really impressive feat right like um uh or like i mean conversely like you know like a 40 year old who's um worked at like a bunch of different companies and every single company they ended up moving up the ranks in some level like that's impressive like these 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 kinds of um uh, the, these are the kinds of things that, that we were looking for and we were like okay, if the team has the, the potential to build something that's a, a billion dollar company then then we should fund them um, mm-hmm. we didn't too heavily weight our own opinion on the market the size of the market the, uh, the, sort of the, the stuff that a lot of traditional investors do because we just felt like it wasn't relevant Gotcha. So I, I know they said that was the last YC I just had one other question that popped in my head that I need you to settle this score for me right here um, okay Single founder versus co-founders. I know that um, yeah. you know there, there's kind of a two schools of thought on this, uh, on this, uh, especially at YC. How, how, how do you view it, both personally and uh, from a YC perspective, when you were there? I mean, both personally and from a YC perspective, when we were there, like just, in my mind, there's still no doubt that if you have the option, if you it, 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 having a um, okay, it's kind of amusing, but like okay, the, the related this uh, the same advice people give relationships and and getting married, I think applies here, right? Like being in a happy marriage, it's like there's probably nothing better than uh, I'm I, I'm not married, so maybe I'm, I'm like okay. Um, <laughs> I, 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 have, I I I'm married, I, so I I, I, I think that's great. <laughs> I think okay, it's great being in, in a happy marriage, is what I'm saying. Okay, there you go. So <laughs> let, let's just say like you know, let's just say the ideal is being in a happy marriage. Um, uh. Uh, and then you would say the second is actually like being single because that's still better than the third, which is being in like a destructive, unhappy relationship or marriage, um, right? And I think the same applies to to being a single founder versus being a co-founder or having co-founders. Having co-founders that complement your skills, that you enjoy working with, that um, uh, can sort of just like help you like... Uh, in my mind, this is nothing better than that. And that's what I have with Triple Byte. Like we have a complementary set of skill sets, and they like, and we disagree on things, but we disagree on things in like a healthy way that ultimately results in better decisions. And there's no way that Triple Byte would have grown if like the three of us didn't have each other. So like, I, I that that to me is sort of a, the ideal situation. At the same time, if you have an idea that you have the kind of passion that I'm describing about, where like you've immersed yourself in it, and you you just have an incredibly high degree of confidence. Um, that it's like the that it now is the time, but you don't have a co-founder. Then, um, but you you have a credible plan for getting the company off the ground and launched. You should probably go ahead and do that versus like waiting for your co-founder. And 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 just again, the big learning I had from Y Combinator is like rules, like having rigid rules about startups is just 
it just doesn't work. So although internally we really didn't like funding single founder companies for, for the reason I just said, because we felt like it's just so much harder not having co-founders, you're less likely to stick with it and, and per- persevere. Um, at the same time, like Instacart, when you play um, now an $8 billion company, like uh, Arpuva applied as a single founder. Um, uh, Brian Armstrong, now the founder CEO of Coinbase, like lost his co-founder like in, during YC. Um, Drew Houston, the Dropbox founder, originally applied to YC as a single founder, though Paul and Jessica did make him go and get a co-founder as a condition of joining YC, and he found one, and that worked out great. So. Um, my my point is just that although you can have preferences in startups in both uh, anything around startups, it is a world where the outliers dominate everything, and so preferences are good, um, but you can't apply them as rigid rules. Mm-hmm. I th- I, yeah, I, I I totally can see that. I think uh, I think that's some sound advice. I, I'm glad that you were able to kind of balance it out because I think you know I. I, I started I started uh, Kai as a, as a single founder, but I but I, one of the thi- as a solo founder, but one of the things I made sure to do early on was that I had uh, a, a team under me that really complemented my skills, but also yep. uh, but also were, were different and offered things that I couldn't do. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, so but there's 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 many ways to I guess do it. Uh, I guess. But yeah. Ultimately, I, I do see the benefit to having a co-founder, especially if it's something that you know. Uh, it it just offers another kind of head to like you know keep to help keep your head on straight you know because yeah. when one of you's when one of you's down maybe the other one maybe the other one isn't right and yeah you know, type of thing um, yeah. and I think it's just another aspect of that is just like it, it doesn't necessarily have to another interesting debate is like it doesn't necessarily have to be an equal co-founding partnership by why Combinator especially when I was there and generally has been. So traditionally, very much has a strong, strong preference for wanting to see equal co-founding relationships and, and in terms of equity shares. But there's also a lot of counter examples here. Like if you look at some of the big success stories, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, um, those companies didn't actually have, they, although they had co-founders, they didn't have equal splits between the co-founders. And so that, that's, uh, that's another way of saying like, you know, having an equal co-founder, like fantastic if you can pull it off, then you've got to obviously have huge trust in that person. But like, building out a team and like maybe like it's a co-founding team so long as you have strong conviction in the idea and so what you need to do to to get the idea off the ground like that also can work and has been hugely successful for many people cool uh one of the, i want to change gears slightly uh there's there's something that you know i've been talking about on, on previous episodes a little bit the uh you know the use of um ICOs when it comes to raising money. We were just talking about obviously getting into Y Combinator. This is a whole separate beast. Um, yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, and like there are a lot uh, – there's kind of two parts to this question. One, can you can, break it down for me? Explain to me how, how this works with an ICO and what are the benefits or and drawbacks for startups. And also at the same time, you know, you hear the word blockchain so much. You know, it's, it's almost like you're bombarded with it these days. Is blockchain um, as big a deal as 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 the hype that's surrounding it right now? I guess we should start uh, so with the original one, the uh, okay, so the ICOs. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll caveat both. I'll caveat both my both my answers with I'm I'm certainly not an expert on either ICO or, or blockchain. It's, it's something that I have. Um, uh, I'm interested in the tech industry and, and topics in general, so I so I, I know about them. I'm I'm certainly not an expert. Um, but my my opinions would be to the ICOs, like what, what they fundamentally are is a way of 
um, as a company or as a founder of you being able to sell an interest in your startup um, without giving away equity ownership. So instead of selling shares in the company, you're selling tokens. Right. Um, and people buy these tokens. And one, that gives you one um, uh, just capital, like they have to buy, they're, they're like giving you money. So it's a way of you just getting access to, to capital. Um, uh, but two, the idea is that like the, the value of that token um, is tied to the success and value of your company. So just like the the better your company is doing or the larger the number of users you have and more people that are buying the, the tokens, the value of those tokens should increase. So you also now get a, a sort of a group of people who are interested in the success of your startup. Um, and so that's sort of the, the, the concept behind the ICO. And I think that there's two aspects to it, right? Like one are like, you know, does that kind of pool, does, does having that group of people out there who are sort of interested in the success of your startup, like does that increase your odds of success? Um, uh, and that's obviously a very big unknown, but like the idea there might be that uh, well, you know, maybe you're like, a, I think generally when people talk about that aspect of it, it, it makes more sense for sort of a, a, a companies where there's sort of a network or a community aspect to it. So the idea is, you know, in theory, you know, if you'd started Airbnb today and you you issued out tokens in your in your sort of uh, home share to your, um, your your Airbnb s company, that now sort of people who hold the tokens would like um, have a real strong interest in the success of Airbnb and telling everyone about Airbnb and telling everyone to list their place or go stay at a place because they want the value of their tokens to go up. So, um, and that kind of makes sense when other people when they can sort of give their tokens or other people can buy tokens too. So I think that that's sort of one idea is like you know can you can you basically build this sort of community that has an interest in your um, in your startup? And then, and the other is just like you, know, you get money, and money lets you like hire people and do things and, and grow grow a company, right? Um, uh, I think that like the the first thing there, the benefit of having this sort of community or this group of people interested in in the success of your company, it still remains. I, I don't think there's any evidence that that as yet um, has really taken off, and that's a big unknown. Um, right, I'm with you that, on that. Yeah. Yeah, there there right, hasn't think, been any 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 company that's broke out because because they ICO they you know uh, yeah. in terms of people using the product. Exactly right, um, and of course it comes with other downsides. Like you know, one downside that um, people say to going a uh, downside of going public, or many founders or executives will say this is that once you have a public share price associated with your company, like for better or worse, everyone assumes your company's health is directly tied to the stock. Price, when in reality, that stock price might be more tied by a hedge fund deciding they have to dump a billion dollars worth of your stock for some arbitrary reason. And so um, there's clearly downsides to having this sort of numerical value placed on the how healthy your startup is that's not directly in your control. Um, uh, the part of ICOs that I think are interesting, though, from sort of the technology and funding perspective are, I think what they're starting to get at a little bit is the fact that the venture capital industry in general um, has always had this bit of tension with sort of the founding or the startup community around how much of the value a venture capitalist provides is in the money, just literally giving you money so that you can do things, and how much it is in this sort of mystique expertise, this sort of additional layer of stuff that you get from an experienced venture capitalist that increases your odds of success beyond just the amount of money they give you, right? Um, and so this is why, and this is sort of, uh, from a venture capitalist perspective, um, the more they want to push that argument in the direction of, oh, the money is almost a secondary thing. Mostly what it is is the advice and the connections and all this other stuff that we're giving you. Because the more you believe that, um, the the um, 
the more the lower a price they have to pay for to buy shares in your company because it's not just the money it's, it's the other stuff right um uh and typically in a world where venture capitalists are the only source for a startup to raise funding from venture capitalists have all the leverage in that argument right because a founder can't really push back too much because they've got no other alternatives. Um, in a world where you start getting alternative funding sources like an ICO, then suddenly we start getting um, into a world where venture capitalists have to justify or push a little bit further to explain why you you need more than just capital, why you need their expertise. And, and I think the consequence that that's having is you're starting to see venture capital firms really start becoming companies themselves. They're moving from, you know, three or four people in a room who sort of work part time uh, and spend a lot of time playing golf to like these full on firms that have like, you know, heads of recruiting, heads of growth, like um, additional services, like all all of these knock on effects where the VC firms are having to really compete to be able to get into the deals and really justify why they are more than just uh, a supply of money. And I think that's sort of an in, that's a consequence that's been driven by the by by ICOs, and that and that's independent of whether ICOs become a longer term sustainable strategy. I think they're just sort of a, another aspect of that. Um, uh, the second question you had with the, around blockchain, um, again, I think um, I, I think everyone who even the even the zealots would agree that as yet what blockchain is still waiting for is. Um, that sort of killer application to break out like in the way that right. um, it's been it's been 10 years but we're still waiting well, <laughs> I, I don't i don't quite think it's fair to say that it's been 10 years even yes okay indeed it's been like 10 years since the original white paper for bitcoin was published but right. like early on there was a lot more interest into sort of the computer science behind mining bitcoins and true just that's bitcoins true. and uh, than, than there was I, I think in terms of how long has it been that sort of the best technical talent in the world has been highly focused and concentrated on trying to build applications on a new on this new emerging technology that that time period is much much less than 10 years right so i do think it's fair to say right. that I, that's very, probably a very, couple of years i would perhaps. yeah right yeah. over the last couple of years and like and the truth is that the rise of like what happened is like as like as the price of bitcoin and cryptocurrencies like kept rising so rapidly like it attracted people it attracted it attracted two types of people it attracted well actually they're, they're overlapping it attracted two types of motive it attracted people who just wanted to buy the buy cryptocurrencies to get rich fairly quickly and it attracted people that were interested in building on top of the technology itself and sometimes those people may be the same right um i think what's uh, but i still think fundamentally that was good like anything that's a honeypot for getting the brightest technical talent in the world focused on applying a technology to try and create a better um a better user experience or better products is generally a good thing, right? Um, my personal opinion is that although we still haven't seen a breakout application, I think although the price of cryptocurrency plunged this year, I think the macro trends are just what's happening in the world right now for increasing user demand for technologies that can be built on top of Bitcoin or I'm sorry, on top of the blockchain um, went up. Like I think more than anything, we're seeing like all of the drama around Facebook, for example. I think that's going to increase, and just like the and um, privacy leaks. I think there's, um, I think there's more interest in just sort of the users at large around this idea of what does a decentralized application or just like services look like. What does it look like when there's not some central authority that can um, 
freeze my bank account or owns all of my user data or owns my identity like um uh that kind of stuff i think started out as only being of interest to like the sort of the fringe sort of conspiracy theorists like the, the you know there's like like the the government's using sort of fluoride in our toothpaste to track what we're doing kind right, of the like tinfoil hat. Okay. yeah <laughs> right um, but i think i think i think it started moving out a little bit more into just like the wider group and and like hollywood's always a good place and just like movies and content of movies is always a good sort of i think barometer of just what's the the zeitgeist of, of stuff at the moment and you're starting to see more movies that just seem like they're in this world of like sort of the government and surveillance and um uh uh and sort of centralized authority um and i think it's it's not i think it'll be i think those things will all serve to create more user demand in these kinds of decentralized applications but whether these actually get built whether they get well i have no doubt they'll get built whether they actually get the adoption that's still the big unknown right but i think it's still mm -hmm. going to be really interesting to see what happens in the next few years but the truth is we are certainly in a period of let's wait and see if a killer application emerges or not yeah how, just curious how much how, how much how much longer would you expect to wait if you had if you had to make an educated guess for that killer application to kind of make its way into the, into the world uh, this kind of stuff is always like little <laughs> loosey loosey goosey i don't know i i can tell you that it may take okay i think it may take up to another decade um i think more realistically probably within the next five years well not realistically uh, in general sense i think i think the time frame is probably five years like you know i think i think it will probably take around five years to conclusively sort of see if the if killer applications on top of blockchain have emerged um um but I, just, I think that's not that's in line with just how long it usually takes to build clear applications on top of new technology. So um, yeah. uh, it, it doesn't concern me that it may we may still be several years out. Well, that's good to know. I, I, I personally think blockchain technology is super fascinating. And, and, and I, I do think, like you mentioned, especially with the, the, a lot of the privacy issues that, you know, with Facebook that have come up recently, I think yeah. more people are kind of warming up or, or or becoming aware of this 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 technology and and the potential positive use case uh that it could have you know yeah uh, for decentralized services or apps and things like that oh my god harsh there's been like we, we've talked about like so many different things we're we're running uh, we're running a little we're running a little low on time so i want to we're going to have to jump to the lightning round but i, I mean i would love sure. to have you back to talk more about uh especially when it comes to hiring engineers and and startups competing for talent with companies like Google and Facebook. Um, I'll have to have you back to talk more about that. But let's jump to the lightning round, of course, sure. which is supported by Wix, or you can create a professional website today. That's wix.com. That's wix.com. So Harsh, whenever you're ready, you let me know and we'll get started. Uh, let's do it. All right, here we go. Last, I'm sorry, the last song played on your phone or computer. Uh, chain smokers. This feeling. Oh my god! I think that might be mine too. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> I was literally listening to that right before the podcast. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> if someone narrated your life, who would you want the narrator to be? Morgan Freeman. I'm not being original there at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I I had I had, uh, I had uh, Nis Frome, a co-founder of Alpha. I think. Was it Nis? It was somebody recently who I gave him that question. Gave them that question. They had someone, and now I don't remember who it was. So I'll have to go back and listen. But it was someone like I expected Morgan Freeman, but they they went a completely different route. 
What's the I would like it. <laughs> What's the most no. recent show you've binge binge watched? Uh, this is us. I've started just going into that recently, and I'm like quite very. It, it, it's great. Are, have, have, you can be honest here. Have Have you cried at all? <laughs> A little, little, little teary so far. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I, I haven't. I don't think I'm. I'm not. I don't think I'm. Everyone tells me that's going to happen. I feel. I don't think I'm quite deep enough into it yet. But I, it's gotcha. just the last show that I, I watch episodes back to back. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad you like it. Uh, waffles or pancakes? Uh, um, pancakes. It's a good choice. I'm with you on that. Last one. So waffles. Waffles yeah, has a very different meaning. In England, by the way, like waffles is sort of this. Um, uh, they're made of potatoes, and they're sort of like this. Um, they're, they're sort of like a grid, like a square with like um, sort of like a, a grid in it, and they're, they're delicious. So I would put like, waff- those waffles. I'd put at the top. Uh, like so that here yeah. in here, I think that we call those waffle fries, right? In America, slightly in the US? different. Yeah, I, oh, they're slightly I know what you're different. About, but they're, they're, they're same concept, so sort of like a mm-hmm. fried potato, um, but like this, it's it's it, they're slightly different. Um, Today uh, I learned, uh, <laughs> and, and I ate way too many of them when I was young. Um, so, um, <laughs> well, live, live and learn, right? Or eat, eat them while you can, I guess. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, All right, last last one. If you could shop for free at one store, which one would you choose? The Apple Store. Oh, I don't feel like that's a good one. That's actually, I I really like that answer. Uh, I really yeah. like that answer mostly because I was expecting. Uh, this is the first time I actually asked that question um, yeah. in the lightning round. I expected someone to say Amazon, but Apple Store. Uh, made, uh, I, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> Whole selection for sure. Um, <laughs> I, I was thinking physical stores. I guess Amazon's starting to get physical stores too. But okay, yeah, so, yeah. physical stores, the Apple one, Apple store would be the one. Cool. So, uh, Harj, it's been great having you on. If anyone, if anyone is listening to this and wants to uh, get in touch with you afterwards, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can tweet me at Harjeet. That's my full name, H A R J E E T, or they can email me at Harj at triplebyte.com. Cool. So you're part you're part of the uh, the first name club on Twitter. Yes, I was, I was <laughs> fairly fairly early. So since then, I stopped using my full name very often. So I wish I'd, I'd used Ad Hodge back then, but so it goes. Uh, I guess that's not it's not available anymore. No, someone someone else not, not <laughs> has it. So, oh, uh, maybe one day I'll get it. Off. Well, Hodge, it's been great having you on. I really appreciate it. Look forward to keeping in touch, and uh, we'll have to get you back on to talk more about the best way to hire engineers because. That's a super interesting topic, and I think something that startup founders need to know about, and the best way to you know surround themselves with the best possible team. Awesome, we'd love to do that. Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the podcast at Anchor.fm/slash/BestTechie and or by leaving a rating interview on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.